Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. All right, episode 32 of Hashing It Out, coming at you. As always, I'm Dr. Corey Petty with my trusty co-host, Colin Couchet. Say hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. All right, we'll play. Today, <laughs> our episode is with Grid Plus. I have Carl and Alex with us to join us to discuss all things Grid Plus and crypto on a technical side, what problems exist, etc. Why don't you say hello, give everybody... Kind of a quick introduction as to, as always, where you came from, why you're in the space, and what problems you're trying to solve. Hey, uh, this is Alex. So I got really interested um, around 2015. I'd been introduced actually by Carl before that, but I read up on Ethereum as it was sort of launching, and I got um, really interested in what that was sort of bringing to the space. I was working at a fintech company. Um, and was working with a traditional payment processor, and I um, was very frustrated with it. It was very difficult and expensive, and I thought that this could uh, solve a lot of problems in that space. So I kind of uh, started developing, never looked back, joined Consensus, was working there for a while, and then we spun out into Grid Plus, where I am now. Yeah, uh, so this is Carl. <clears throat> I got interested in crypto uh, back in the 2012 timeframe. Uh, I was in uh, graduate school at the time, uh, working on a doctorate in material science. Um, number of times during graduate school, I was thinking to myself, maybe I should just quit and go do crypto full time. But in like 2013, 2014, it was it was pretty tough to find uh, employment uh, in the space. So, um, uh, you know, as, as fate would have it, I introduced uh, Alex uh, during graduate school to cryptos. He ended up getting a job at Consensus eventually after he graduated. Uh, and then he was working on some energy projects and I had some, um, you know, experience and expertise in the area. Um, so I ended up getting a job working at Consensus and then uh, eventually we came up with the idea of Grid Plus and, and we spun it out as a company. So now we're, we're uh, Grid Plus. And uh, Grid Plus, um, just a quick introduction there, I guess, is uh, the world's first blockchain-based uh, electric utility. And our customers will um, eventually be able to buy, sell, and settle their energy in real time using blockchain. So um, a lot of the problems we're working on is how to um, actually use blockchain for a very practical application, but for an application where you're actually having to interact with, uh, you know, the average sort of uh, lady person. Um, so we're building a set of hardware and software interfaces that um, abstract kind of crypto out and the security associated with crypto um, such that the average person can kind of interact with it easily and seamlessly without not really needing to know 
kind of what's going on under the hood. So that is what I would call a very difficult but necessary thing to do in this space. And that is a ridiculous mug that you just put up. <laughs> Your unicorn mug with rainbows and such on them. Very appropriate for the space. But like my in my experience so far and how I've kind of thought about this is that like we can build all these cool technology in the space, but it's so drastically different because people are responsible for maintaining these private keys and passwords and things. And as we've seen, at least in the security field, everyone is really shitty at handling passwords, especially when they're really long and are associated with money. How, and, and a part of what you're trying to do is abstract that away, like you just said. Uh, how do you do that so that people can have all of the benefits of handling their own wealth and assets, digital assets, but also like not force them to be incredibly educated and understand all the cryptography and, and whatnot. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would a hundred percent agree with you in terms of, um, you know, the difficulty associated with this and, and sort of the, the average understanding of security, right. By the average person and kind of how they interact with it and, and how that would be dramatically, um, inadequate for um, dealing with any form of, of digital money. Um, the interesting thing that we've kind of come to is that what it, what it really comes down to, right, is, is storing a secret in physical space as we see it. And there's an example of how that's actually done well for the average person currently, and that's payment cards, right? So when you look at payment cards and, and you compare those to blockchain, um, sort of how they work, you know, chip-based payment cards and how a blockchain works, it's, you know, very, very, very much analogous, right? I mean, they're, they're both, you know, private um, keys on the cards that make signature when you put them in a terminal to sign a transaction that get, then gets broadcast to a network. In one case, it's, you know, say the Visa or MasterCard network. And in another case, it is, um, you know, it's, it's a blockchain, right? So, um, the solution that we're developing is, is actually called the Lattice One from the hardware standpoint. And it's kind of like your um, sort of crypto bank, right? It, it looks a lot like kind of a, like a point of sale terminal, uh, but it's one that you would have and own at home. So it has a, a native account on it. Um, it has a secure interface so that you can interact kind of with the account that's in the device. Um, the device itself, you know, does a lot you know, and we can get into it in terms of how the, the hardware interacts with the security model, but, but you have the secure device uh, and you're able to interact with it. And then we also have the cards, which you can then use to create like many accounts. So instead of just having one account on one device that, you know, you could lose or it could break, um, you can back those accounts up on, on pin or chip cards. Um, you can, you know, do like a two or three multi-sig. You can do um, hierarchical multi-sig. So you do like a one card backed up by three cards sort of thing, but it all interacts kind of with that lattice. And then the lattice is cool because it allows you to then uh, create permissions for different types of payments uh, based off like who's requesting it. So you can pair it with a device or a service. Um, so a device would be like an app. So we have a, what we call our mobile pay app um, and that pairs up with the lattice. And then when you make a request from the mobile pay app, it, uh, has to pass a permission, which is enforced on the lattice. So 
you could say your permission is, you know, $200 per day to, to any, you know, uh, payee. And as long as that request passes, the Lattice will then sign and send that transaction back to your mobile pay app. So the mobile pay app itself isn't like handling keys because it's not a good environment for handling uh, cryptographic, you know, money signing keys. Um, all of those are in the Lattice and then uh, the Lattice actually does the signing. In terms of a service, what it looks like from a point, point of view of Grid Plus is you could pair with your service provider, Grid Plus, your Lattice would sit there and when Grid Plus makes a request for payment, Again, you'd have a permission that says Grid Plus can can charge me $100 worth of energy per month, right? And as long as that uh, request is under your permission, the Lattice will then sign in some of the money uh, back to Grid Plus. So it also creates sort of this, this topology of being able to do permission payments, but also automatic payments. So you can kind of deal with bills uh, from service providers, kind of how you deal with them now, where you, you just set up your Verizon account, you put it on a credit card, uh, and it just automatically pays it every month. Um, What's the resolution of that? I'm kind of curious because one of the, like the, I think, the interesting technological benefits of using crypto cryptocurrency is the idea of streaming payments. So could you, could, like, do you have per, like permissions resolution where you can say like you could charge this amount of cents or this amount of crypto per minute or per second or something like that? Yeah, so so we allow you to set up many permissions for many different time periods and they're... Um, sort of aggregated together. So I could say on my, you know, mobile pay app, I could do $200 per day or $1,000 per month. Uh, you could take that down to second level permissions. Obviously, the issue with doing that is is the fees um, on the network, which you can get around if you do a payment channel. Um, and there's some other interesting ways to do it that we haven't really talked about in public, yeah. but there's there's other ways to go about it as well. Uh, one thing I'd like to add is when you know you talk about the the, the fees kind of adding up if you're doing micropayments, we've designed this permission and signing system. Uh, so if you think about the Grid Plus Lattice, what we'd like it to be is is an out of the box, um, just like storage facility for all of your secrets and sort of a stateless signer. So it doesn't it itself by default doesn't have a concept of like what the blockchain state is. Uh, and that's because we want it to be blockchain and really signature agnostic. So if you look at something like an emerging standard, like lightning, right? So that's a, that's a different, um, you know, transaction schema than you would have with normal Bitcoin, definitely different than you would have with ether. Right? So we have set this up to um, sort of sign against a uh, like a predetermined set of schema. So one would be an ether transfer. Um, and in that case, you would have like an Ethereum transaction with the data field being blank. Um, you could do an ERC20 transfer, which would have uh, sort of a pre-configured, um, you know, data hex field uh, that, that would facilitate the transfer of an ERC20 token. And then you have something similar for Bitcoin. And, you know, in the future, we could add lightning if there's another sort of payment channel network and protocol that emerged and was gaining market share, we could easily add that. So what we've done is we want this to be extremely abstractable. Um, and we have an SDK that pairs with the device that is uh, available, although you can't use it because I haven't released the device yet. Um, <laughs> but what, what that'll do is it'll basically, when you're defining the permission, you say basically what type it is and that, that, that relates to the schema. Yeah. So, so just to kind of add on to that. So the, the reason we have schemas um, is that 
right? You you can have like your key be perfectly secure, but if I can get you to sign something that you didn't intend, that's just as bad as me getting your key. So the schemas are the mechanism by which the user defines a permission, um, and the permission then is checked against, or you know, a request is checked against that permission based off that schema, right? So in because if I just sort of like send down hex to people or hex into the enclave to sign the transaction and I don't check that hex before signing it, I could sign anything, right? So I didn't reveal the public key, but maybe I, you know, permuted the transaction and generated a new payload to sign, uh, which was taking all your money. So that's kind of the mechanism and the reason that you need the schema is to be able to check what's actually getting signed. Yeah, I got one of the, I got my hands on one of these things at DEF CON when we talked and and something you said kind of really hit me home and, and the way I see this whole space moving forward is it's literally a personal HSM or hardware security module. So it's it's the right way to store very, very secure things for crypto like private keys and and, and has a hardware solution for doing, you know, very configurable uh, signatures and things like that, the types of operations you do with cryptographic assets as well as a permissions layer that sits on top. And that's also highly configurable. And that's and that's kind of what you want. And so you can have, and then this also allows for things like multi-factor authentication for different permissions and allow you to treat different accounts with different levels of like accessibility and withdrawals and all that kind of stuff. And I see that's going to be very, very necessary because people can reason about how they want to spend their money, what they think is valuable and who the, who should have access to it, but they shouldn't have to learn very odd signature schemes and different types of software to do that themselves and all that stuff. And so I, I think this is, this is, that's why I'm so, I'm so like, I like this project so much is because the devices like this, I think are going to end up being ubiquitous now that we've kind of unleashed the idea of digital assets, uh, like permissionless digital assets. I, I certainly hope they become ubiquitous because, because there's really kind of like two paths, right? When, when you think about what cryptocurrencies have done, um, you know, it's disintermediation. And at the broadest level, and, you know, you, you could argue it's disintermediation of the monetary authority, right? So like the central bank uh, issuing currency. Um, when you start talking about disintermediation at the lower levels of your low value added intermediaries to actually get that disintermediation to happen, people have to actually be custodians of their funds, right? So it, it would be, uh, you know, a sad story in crypto if we end up with, you know, crypto becoming ubiquitous. But to do that, we've replaced uh, JP Morgan Chase with Coinbase, um, you know, or Coinbase. Yeah. Like, you know, we just have a new form of a bank, basically. Uh, so we've, we've maybe, you know, removed the money from the central bank, but we still have banks and we still have intermediaries and we still have middlemen. Uh, but now we have it on this public ledger that's like very traceable, um, and so in some ways it's potentially worse than kind of what we have now, because there's some sort of solid degree of privacy, arguably, but, um, you well, know, I've, I've said this a lot. I mean, it's, this is something I've tried to harp on a lot of people is that, um, when you decentralize everything and remove these intermediaries, you push the risk onto the people who are now responsible for the, for this information. If you're going to hold your own value and manage it yourself and not offload that responsibility to somebody else, you also have to handle the security and the risk associated with it. And we, as people building things, have to provide tools that allow them to make good decisions on their own. 
if you do, if they can't do that, then they can never they can never handle the risk associated with the value that they're holding, and they won't ever do it. They'll just use intermediaries like Coinbase. And so, like, you can't have like this ideal dream that that blockchain started, like that, like kind of the idealism that started Bitcoin in the first place. Until you have tools and devices available so that people can make better decisions, and I think this is one of them. Yeah, I mean, and we we absolutely see that, and that's you know really kind of what we're trying to address, and that's really our hope that this is demonstrating at least one solution. Um, or kind of how to get your your parents uh, uh, a mechanism by which they can understand but use to deal with you know blockchain based assets. Now, Grid Plus is was a, when you even said it earlier. It's been kind of a decentralized marketplace for uh, for energy, um, and we haven't talked a lot about energy at, up to this point. Um, what, what exactly are you doing in that space? Uh, and you know, why did you choose Texas, uh, to be the, the home base for that space? Yeah. So, um, originally when, when we came up with grid plus, right, grid plus is this idea of, of blockchain energy. So when Alex and I were at consensus, uh, we were working with, uh, some large energy companies doing proof of concept, uh, demonstrations of, of trading energy, uh, on a blockchain. Uh, what we realized from doing those um, was that all of the energy companies kind of wanted to take a top-down approach. So they wanted to say, hey, we're the big players. Uh, you know, we have these big trading desks. We're going to create a proof of authority chain. And we're all going to kind of like do a demonstration to settle these things. Uh, they would create these very siloed environments. Um, and they were sort of... Um, reluctant to use you know public blockchains but once you get off a of public blockchain you arguably aren't really settling value anymore once you're not settling value anymore then then what are you doing uh you know replacing you're just bookkeeping yeah it, it's just bookkeeping and, and you don't you don't need a you don't need the blockchain at that point to do it you could you could use other solutions like uh databases right um so you know, we, we, we were looking at that and we're saying, okay, how will this actually sort of get adopted? Um, and, and the road looked very long, like, you know, big companies, big changes, you're talking about like decades or more. So the way that cryptos kind of work um, up to this point is, is it's not some big company comes in and says, Here, here's how it's done. It's, it's always a grassroots thing. You're, you're always, you know, starting from, you know, the lowest level and, and, you know, that sort of gains mass. And then, you know, you get sort of higher applications of higher value with more people. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's a grassroots thing. So looking at the energy market, the grassroots thing is instead of starting at the biggest players, like, you know, your trading desks um, of your large energy companies, uh, you start with the consumer. And the consumer is, you know, getting marked up, marked up, marked up, marked up in the chain of, of actually you know, getting their electricity. So if you start with a consumer and you use a blockchain and you give them better access to the markets, you can get rid of all of that markup um, and you can provide them better service. So they're, you know, a good sort of point to start. And, and it's also a low sort of risk point to start. So in Texas, as a deregulated market, we didn't need to go and like get buy-in from the state and the legislature and all these things. We can just start a rep, work with a retail electric provider, work within the existing uh, rule sets and start doing crypto-based um, payments and settlements, right? 
The issue that you get when dealing with the individual, though, is, is how do you, you know, have that individual be able to deal with, you know, crypto based assets and how do you do it in a way that it's, it's automated, right? Because you don't, you know, if, if a residential customer can pay for the electricity, but it's like, hey, man, they got to like get MetaMask out, out <laughs> they got to, uh, you know, get their ledger out and, and do that. I mean, that's, that's obviously not going to work um, at any meaningful level. So, you know, very early on, we, we knew that there was a need for an endpoint for storing and, and dealing with the automatic payments and, and storing uh, the cryptos. Uh, which we called the agent uh, over a year ago. We call it the lattice one now. Um, so to kind of give you an idea of where we are on the energy business, we, we are a retail electric provider in Texas. Uh, we are serving uh, around 20 customers right now. It's kind of like our friends and family. Uh, within the next few weeks, we're going to be rolling that out to beta. Uh, so a number of people, a few hundred or more, have signed up on our, our mailing list. If people are interested in Texas and the deregulated region, Encore or Centerpoint, um, they can go and they can sign up and we'll open that up and then we'll start serving those customers um, as well. So the first thing that we're doing is, um, you know, uh, delivering electricity and then allowing uh, customers to pay monthly with crypto. Um, then once the lattice rolls out, that'll become an automatic payment. And then sometime next spring, we'll start to uh, shorten the interval that you can pay on. So it'll start turning into uh, a more apparent real-time payment. So the market in Texas is a deregulated market, which is one of the reasons we picked it. Um, it also has 15-minute uh, intervals, so it operates in kind of this, this real-time increment or near real-time increment. And then uh, finally, uh, smart meters are ubiquitous in the state of Texas. So in terms of getting the data that you need to do the settlement, um, you know that that's also there as well. So that's those are kind of the reasons we picked Texas. And Texas um, is awesome. smart meter let's, let's, because let's like I, I think that. a lot of our. Oh, sorry, I think a lot of our audience doesn't know what you mean by when you say smart meter. What does that What does that mean? Um, and like, is it a more decentralized way of running the power grid? Like, how does this work? Yeah, so a smart meter is uh, basically a meter that uh, reads um, your your usage electronically, and then has a mechanism for communicating that back. So in Texas, there's two different ways to, to deal with like communicating that back. The, the TDSPs or transmission uh, distribution service providers have a mechanism, um, which they call a backhaul. So it's this, you know, uh, proprietary RF mechanism. Uh, it doesn't have incredibly high uh, throughput. So they only get, you know, reads maybe uh, four times a day. The other mechanism to do it by is something uh, called HAN, uh, Home Area Network, which is uh, just a name for a Zigbee interface on the meter. So the lattice actually has a Zigbee antenna, and we'll be integrating those with the meters such that the lattice can actually ask the meter what its usage is kind of all the time. And then based off that usage, it'll decide, okay, how much um, it'll communicate that back to Grid Plus, then Grid Plus will say, okay, pay me, you know, that number. And then when we get numbers back from the TDSP, maybe a day later, there'll be a sort of reconciliation uh, true up, uh, but it should be pretty accurate, you know, in real time. Um, so yeah, that's that's a smart meter. And in Texas, the, the Texas legislature kind of had this, um, you know, it, it was pretty forward looking vision in 2007 they passed these rules that basically said everybody should have a smart meter. 
we want to run the market on a 15 minute basis and we want it to be perfectly deregulated. So they're trying to set up like, like an efficient, competitive clearing market for electricity. And that's really why Texas was such a good choice. Yeah, that leaves you guys really ripe with opportunity and uh, for your appliances. Um, so that's pretty cool. But what, what can you do with your appliance that you couldn't possibly maybe do with just something that, you know, resolved to fiat? Um, well, so, so there's, there's a couple things. So the first, the first one is, um, this idea of capital and credit. So in the market, you have, uh, the rep, the retail electric provider. So grid plus is a retail electric provider. They provide access, uh, to the wholesale market for the consumer. Um, and you typically do so on, you know, a 30 day use plus a 30 day net basis. So the rep is floating the customer essentially 60 days worth of, of credit. And they're having to place that capital because they're settling every day in the market. So there's a non-zero expense of that. There's also this concept of hedging. So most contracts are fixed price. So it doesn't really matter what you use. They're going to pay a certain, you know, uh, number of cents per kilowatt hour, regardless of what the market is doing. Um, so what this allows is two things. One, if you can compress the payment interval, you can remove the need for capital and credit because you're actually settling in real time. And that allows you to pull, um, you know, expense that you're passing on to the customer out of their bill. Uh, the next thing that you can do is you can give the customer the opportunity to more directly participate in the market. So if they have a lattice um, and they decide to use that to hook up to their nest or, you know, some smart thermostat, or dispatchable load, like the two biggest loads in Texas for a household are going to be their uh, HVAC system, so their, their thermostat, oh, yeah. and their pool pump. So if if you have you know a lattice, um, you get a thermostat for a couple hundred bucks. You get a switch put on your pool pump for like thirty bucks. You can control almost half of your load. So then instead of doing a, a fixed price contract, you can tell your lattice, hey, here's kind of like my opportunity cost. Um, in some sort of easily understandable, abstracted way. Maybe it's like, you know, I'm an eco-consumer, I'm a value consumer, and I'm a comfort consumer, right? So based off kind of how you set your preference, it would uh, dispatch those loads depending on the market price. So what really happens in the market is, you know, a, a megawatt hour can clear anywhere from, you know, negative up to $9,000 per megawatt hour um, in, in a given interval. I mean, typically it's, you know, maybe 30 Right. Uh, so you can get a lot of like volatility in the market during certain times in the year. So depending on how you set your settings, you could say, OK, the market price is going up. I'm not going to be responsive to that market price. I'm just going to th turn my thermostat off for the next 15 minutes. I'm going to turn my pool pump off for the next 15 minutes and I'm going to mitigate my risk. What that means from a consumer standpoint, though, is if you can run on a real time price and you can just chop the volatility out of it by turning off half of your load when that happens, you'll get by far and away the cheapest price on the market that you could discover in any other way. Um, so, I mean, to give an idea, right, if you're running a real-time product and you're doing dispatching in, in a lucky year, so to speak, you'll save another 40% uh, on real time over anything that we could offer in a fixed price. I think that's, that's a, it's something that is relatively uh, normal or this, this monthly payment scheme that we've become accustomed to. And the reason for that is basically because like the, the real, you know, like we'll just take the energy market as a, as an example of this, cause it's a wonderful one. 
the, the way the energy grid works is incredibly dynamic in terms of like demand and supply. Uh, and, and the cost of energy, it fluctuates quite a bit, like you said, the market. And so, uh, we didn't have the infrastructure for people to participate in that previously. So we had to build these intermediaries to kind of uh, absorb that dynamic activity and then offer a consistent price to the end consumer because there was, there was no way for the end consumer to navigate that or, or like, and so but based on that infrastructure, we've just become accustomed to monthly payments, but that payment gets kind of artificially inflated because that intermediary has to have operational costs. There's an overhead associated with doing that type of stuff. In fact, the, all the stuff you just basically detailed for us is why they can charge more. And, and now that we're able to like build new technology that enables to build newer and newer dynamic infrastructure and allow people to directly participate in that market, we no longer need the intermediaries. And so like, I see this as a kind of a underlying theme in a lot of the blockchain space is getting rid of the intermediary because we can now participate in dynamic markets automatically as an end consumer. And we no longer need someone to, to negotiate that for us and then pay them to do so. Yeah, exactly. I think in, in this particular case where you kind of have this like uh, transactive sort of, you know, a transaction based intermediary, if you will. Um, the only way you can actually achieve that though, is through uh, custodianship still. Yeah. They're right? like smoothing so, functions for, for people. <laughs> well, 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 correct. But like I, we can't achieve any efficiency unless the person is the custodian of their assets and they're able to have access and usability of those assets. So if I put them into like a bank situation, what we're going to end up doing is we're going to create, you know, that bank intermediary that's going to charge us fees for every transaction and a percentage. So we're going to kind of, maybe we'd be a little bit better, but we're still going to be not in an ideal situation because we're still going to have that intermediary between the actual producer of the good and the consumer of the good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a theme and the, the real, I think, need to make that theme realized is, is that custodianship solution. So, if you want to kind of like generalize what we're doing, we're kind of building what I would call a repless rep, right? So we're we're a rep, but our goal as a rep is to like not be a rep. Your job right? is to make your job obsolete, almost. Yeah, co correct. And and you could think about that with other systems. Like like a super obvious one to me is like creating a carrierless carrier. So a wireless carrier. If if you you know kind of understand how the infrastructure works, you understand how sort of uh, you know, bandwidth agreements work. It's a, it's a very similar model to the energy business. And if you create that custodianship solution, uh, you could actually have a phone where you're just bidding for the cheapest tower, or maybe it's not even a tower, maybe it's a Wi-Fi connection, or it's something like that. So you're finding sort of in real time the cheapest uh, counterparty to deliver the service. And that's enabled by, by having, you know, that um, uh, standard blockchain to let everybody interoperate. Jeez. So uh, something that, that I, I don't, haven't heard you talk about is you've released a token um, and you're funded through the ICO, I believe. So what are your intents for the token and the ICO? Yeah, so the tokens um, are basically a coupon uh, and the coupon is redeemable for uh, 500 kilowatt hours of electricity at uh, essentially the wholesale cost. So uh, zero markup uh, between the wholesale cost and the cost that you're paying. 
Uh, so basically, even if we're a repless rep, we still have overhead. Um, so we have to mark up a little bit, but it's it's less than obviously a traditional rep would mark up. So with a token, you're getting uh, basically the lowest sort of market discovered price in the wholesale market. And so this would only work for people who have the lattice installed in their house and have, have it hooked up to their system. Um, so right now, it's not really viable because you're only kind of in the early alpha stages and then you're going to get into beta. So, so, so the, the alpha customers have, have redeemed grid. Um, and so you can redeem it on a fixed price rate too. So we'll take the average of sort of the wholesale costs and um, we'll, you know, uh, deliver that price to the end consumer. So you don't have to have a lattice to, to use uh, grid tokens. Um, the, you know, you could, you could be on a fixed price contract and you could still use grid tokens, um, in terms of, uh, kind of like other uses, um, uh, we are planning, it's not certain at this point, but we're planning to also let people use the grid tokens to uh, get a discount on the lattices themselves. Um, so there's, there's a number of different uh, use cases. The current one is, is basically getting cheaper energy in Texas. And you burn those after use, right? Correct. Yeah. So that's like eventually there will be no more token. Correct. Yeah. I remember hearing that. I think the first time we interviewed a long time ago on block channel or something. Uh, so go ahead. you have all these devices and they're communicating uh, all these transactions. Um, mm-hmm. How do you know what device is making that transaction? Can you marry uh, these transactions to the devices? This is more of like a technical question. Like, how do you know what did what? necessarily i mean you have one user with like an identity but is there a way to tie it down to the device level or is that something that that's uh not necessary for the scheme um so in the context of grid plus the retailer we are only concerned um if we're talking about crypto payments we're only concerned about who's sending uh payments to to which recipient address so what we would do in in the case of the retailers we every customer has one or more receiving addresses, and we're basically watching those. So, um, and, and then if we if we migrated to a payment channel, it would be kind of the same deal. So, with a with a device, you would typically, um, I guess we haven't talked about this. So, so the way that you kind of set up your device as a consumer, um, this would be both on the energy side, and then also we will sell these as standalone devices that'll come with you know a mobile wallet. Um, So you you have an app, and in this case, it would be the mobile wallet. That would be the first kind of app out of the gate. And the the first step to getting set up would be um, to to do something called pairing with it. Um, And this is is basically a Diffie-Hellman key exchange. You generate a shared um, encryption key and are able to communicate with the device. And once you can communicate with the device, you can request uh, addresses and you can request signatures uh, using those addresses. So, so the, the, the keys never leave the device, but the addresses will be um, basically received by paired applications, if that makes sense. So um, in the future, what you could do is we, I mean, the, the purpose of the SDK really is that you could have many apps that pair to your, uh, your device and the way that they would discover that uh, the device is via a serial number. So you would you would basically load up your app as a user and as an owner of your device, you would type in your serial number. It would basically use a, a cloud proxy kind of similar to discovery nodes in a, in a peer-to-peer network. And it would find essentially the IP address of the network interface of the device. 
and it would use that to, to initiate that key exchange. And uh, we can we can talk about the mechanics of that if you want, but yeah, that, please do. Actually, I want to hear the details on that. So, like, you have an IP address, but IP addresses change all the time. So that's not marrying it to any like that's not going to be part of like a private key or anything. What are you using like to, to cor- correct? Yeah. So so uh, taking a step back, there are there's basically two. Well, really three chips on the device. And um, the first, the outermost layer is, is your network interface. So this is uh, essentially a system on a chip that's running Linux. And that's obviously not where we store the private keys. It's not even where we build the transaction logic. So that's what you're pairing with. That's what has the IP address. And that, that's what allows you to basically um, make requests to the device. Now, the identifying characteristics of the device are actually the third chip, which is the same uh, chip that you would find on like a credit card. Uh, and that's that's where your keys are stored. That's where the signatures are made. Um, that's that can only communicate with an app through like three layers of abstraction. The first being the network interface. The second being your HSM, which is where you take requests and you basically parse them through those permission or through those schema types that we were talking about earlier. And only once you've built that transaction do you send it to the the chip for signing. Um, but you can think of a transaction as not necessarily just being a payment. You, you, it could be sort of um, a cryptographic signature to sort of authenticate your identity or something like that. So what, what I would say is that loosely it, the, the concept of identity is constrained to that third chip. And what makes this device even more interesting, I think, is that the third chip also comes on smart cards that we will see independently. So if you plug a smart card in, um, or if you go through a multi-sig scheme, uh, then that that can actually take over as your identity as long as it's sort of plugged into the device. So if you want to communicate with that, um, you, you could then do that with a paired device, but it's sort of an ephemeral identity. Um, and you can think of that as, you know, in all sorts of sort of multi-factor authentication schemes. Yeah, so, so to give a little summary of that. So there's there's the three chips, uh, the secure computing environment, or sorry, the general computing environments, your outermost layer, your secure computing environment is uh, one of these uh, secure chips um, that was originally designed for point of sale systems. So it's hardened against, uh, you know, power analysis attacks, side channel attacks. It has the ability to do anti-tamper monitoring. Um, so basically our whole device is wrapped in an electrical mesh and that you know, electrical mesh um, is, is composed of wires that are twice the thickness of your human hair, and it's monitored from the day the device is provisioned to its end of life. So if anyone tries to tamper with the device, cut into it, drill into it, open it, um, it'll basically uh, brick the device. And then that's that's actually that chip right there is kind of the, the hypervisor of transactions. So when a request is made and the schema, you know, is being checked against a permission, that's the chip that's actually doing the checking. Uh, and then it's also the one that's actually uh, forming the hash that then gets signed by the third chip, which is the one uh, Alex mentioned from a smart card. We call it the secure enclave. Uh, and that's where the key is actually persistent. So that that one would actually then sign the transaction, send it back to the uh, secure compute environment, and then send it back to the general compute environment and then broadcast it out. So, so that's the, interesting to me. So the, the second chip, the, the secure compute layer, that's not general compute. It has this very specific purpose. Is this differentiated or similar to uh, FPGA in any way? Or is that is it is it literally a sp- kind of like an ASIC and that it's like specifically built to do one thing? Or how does that uh, so, so it's 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 not an ASIC. It's um, 
it's a it's a microcontroller, but it's a hardened microcontroller. It's it's purpose built for um, kind of secure financial applications. So this this one, um, you know, finds its use currently in point of sale terminals. Um, and so so it's not an ASIC, it's not an FPGA. It's it's a it's a general purpose Sounds micro like a PLC, like a programmable logical controller that they use in like industrial control systems. Yeah, it's it's a little bit it's a little bit. Um, it's more, more akin to that than an ASIC. Yeah, it, it it has a little bit more power than a PLC, uh, but it yeah, I mean, it only has two fifty six k of RAM, so it's it's all done in C. Um, it's not you know a high uh, power thing. You know, all the code that that's going on it is something that you know we're writing and we're reviewing, so it, it's a very constrained sort of operating set. Uh, and then the other thing that we didn't mention actually is is we have a physical mailbox between the two devices. Um, so between the general compute environment and secure compute environment, there's actually uh, um, it's it's an FRAM uh, or a FRAM. Uh, it's it's this form of of magnetic flash memory, uh, and basically that's physically muxed away from the um, the GCE. So the way it's kind of like an airlock, right? So the GCE says, Hey, I have a message. Okay. I'm going to fill the Fram. Uh, or no, sorry. It says, Hey, I have a message. It tells the secure compute environment that it has a message. Secure compute environment opens the airlock. Right. And then the, um, GCE writes to this Fram. Uh, it then says, okay, I'm with, with a separate line. There's a one line interface. It says, okay, I'm done with, with writing. So then the, the secure compute environment then reverses the airlock. So then the GCE no longer has access to the FRAM and the uh, secure compute environment has access to the FRAM. And then it reads that limited set of data out of the FRAM um, and then can operate on it. So even that message passing interface, we've kind of made like this airlock so that that only a certain amount of data of like a certain type like can can get to the secure compute environment when it wants it and in no other way. So you can't have like overflow errors or anything like that or buffer overruns because like you physically only have, you know, this, you know, 128, yeah. you know, bytes of memory here to write to at a time. And, and the general compute environment doesn't have access to it when the secure compute environment's reading and vice versa. So uh, it's, it, right. it's, sort of, it's sort of like a CDC tent, right? Where you have people coming in uh, who may huh. be infected? You can kind of <laughs> the Linux chip. We don't. We don't trust it. Uh, we don't trust the outside world. So we want to make sure that there's a clean way to get any um, anything that needs to come to the secure compute. Uh, we want it cleaned out, and we want to make sure that it conforms to the schema that we expect. What I find interesting about all this um, is that like that all sounds very complex and people may be scared about it and say like, oh, this technology isn't usable. But at the end of the day, like if you look at how just like credit cards work, right? Like the chips on credit cards and then the backend infrastructure associated with transporting that message and handling the, the, the messages is also incredibly complex, but people use the living shit out of it, right? Yeah, and they have no idea how it works. It's like no people don't even know they're holding keys on the on their credit cards and what the chip does they just say oh i insert this piece of plastic and money happens exactly so so of all this complexity right if we're a tech person right we can discuss and you know geek out on the complexity but from a user standpoint like you say you need to know about none of it when when it's all put together and done you just have 
you know, the magic money box that you stick the magic money card into and money magically happens, right? Or, or, or don't. So just to clarify one point, um, there is one of those, or just to reiterate it rather, there is one of those smart card chips baked into the device itself. Yeah. So you don't need a smart card, um, but it, it's, it's useful for like multi-factor authentication. And backups and whatnot. Yeah, and backups. As well, as well as like multiple identities, I'd imagine. Like if you want multiple yeah. accounts and for various things or like multiple people doing different things with, with different crypto, you'd need those cards to change through that type of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for, for example, I, you know, if, if you're into crypto, you likely have more than one hardware wallet. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I have quite a few different things uh, stored in different places. Yeah. Yeah, but what this does is this allows you to kind of have like one central place for your hardware wallets. And then when you want to have different, you know, identities, maybe you have, you know, a business use case for one account, you have a personal use case for another, maybe you have, you know, that use case that you don't know want the people to know about on another, whatever that might be. Uh, and then, right, and then you also have this concept of backups, which gives you the idea of being able to store your many cards in many different places. So with one device um, and essentially an infinitely number, uh, an infinite number of abstractable accounts and cards, you can pretty much just have the one device and still achieve all the things that you could achieve with, uh, with, you know, your 10 hardware wallets that you have sitting in different places. Yeah. So there, there's also one thing I want to just kind of highlight that we haven't really talked about directly, um, which is that we, sort of philosophically, we don't like BIP39. Um, and the reason we don't like it is because if you think mechanically about how you back up, basically how you use a hardware wallet today, right? So you you know, you know unbox it, you it generates some, some randomness and it spits that out into seed words. And what do you do? You you write those down on a piece of paper in plain text. No, you take a, take a phone photo of it and put it in your phone Dropbox. Yeah. <laughs> and, and back it up with your, your iCloud. <laughs> so like fundamentally from like a secret storage perspective, it doesn't, it doesn't solve anything. It just pushes the secret to another layer. I mean, admittedly putting it on a piece of paper may be better than putting it on, you know, your laptop, but it's not that great. Um, it it so, does. It can solve it. But what it does is it makes it incredibly easy to negate all of the security things you're doing by putting on a hardware wallet. And it shouldn't be that easy to screw it up. Well, and it puts the onus on the user. And yeah. even as like somebody familiar in the space, it's still very difficult to securely deal with seed phrases, mm -hmm. right? Just, just, just physically. So, but when you think about the cards, the cool part about the cards is um, you could get one of my cards with my, my entropy audit and I'd be perfectly comfortable with that. Um, right. So as long as I've done my due diligence and making sure that I have, kind of mit mitigated my risk through, you know, the use of the accounts that I have and, and backups that I've made. If you get one of my cards, like I'm, I'm not going to lose any sleep at night because I know you're not going to be able to use it. So unlike that piece of paper, that's my backup that sort of sits on my counter, one of these chip cards, if it's sitting on my counter and you get it, like it's and, fine. And, and that's, that's because they're pin protected. We didn't say that. Explicitly, but yeah, yeah. Well, well, so, so they're, they're, they're pin protected. And the other thing that they have is, is something called a puff. So, um, either the secret that's on the card will be encrypted by the puff, or you could use the puff directly um, such that if you get your hands on the puff and, and you don't have the pin, you don't have the device, like 
I, I don't care who you are, you're, you, you know, and what technique you want to use. If you want to decap the chip, if you want to, you know, put in a TM, you're still not getting my, you're still not getting my seed rays. So it's, it's just a very good way to keep a secret in physical space. So this is all from a decentralized like perspective, like the, each device is kind of its own little wallet unit and it, it contains your own stuff, but there's got to be some sort of centralized component if you're maintaining a marketplace for say energy um, or or any sort of asset that you're trying to trade using this, um, I mean, there has to be some sort of reporting features and some way of interfacing with 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 this stuff. And, and like, how do you know how much is going on in the grid? You can get these smart smart devices, but I mean, these smart meters. But is there some sort of like central reporting or sort of like anything about this that that has like uh, kind of a bottleneck in the central central area? Yeah. So, so in the in the uh, energy use case, the centralization is, is uh, grid plus as a rep, right? Um, and that will continue to be the bottleneck until sort of regulation changes that allows us not to be that bottleneck. But, but presently, there's no way for us to actually allow the customer to directly interface the market. They'll always have to go through us as a pass-through until sort of the market regulations change. Um, so in terms of the marketplace, yeah, we're the, the centralization for electricity. Um, there is a path that you could use to decentralize that and you could use lattices and you could use one of a numerous number of, you know, decentralized exchange protocols to, to effectuate that. But that is a long-term vision that would require us to get, uh, kind of the rules changed, um, within within the marketplace so yeah, and that makes that makes perfect sense but um so i guess you're settling on the blockchain right so we would go through your system or would they directly interface with the blockchain themselves you see your blockchain agnostic if you want to be open to lightning protocol as well as just regular ethereum are you settling on the device itself or are we going through your system yeah, no. So, the, so the device is is forming and sending the transaction. They don't. Okay, they, can, okay. they can set up with whatever node. You know, if they want to run a full node at their house, they want to, you know, connect to whatever full node. If they want to run an SPV node, however they want to do it, right? Um, they can do it. So it's the blockchain is independent of us, right? So let's um, talk about the happy path then. Everybody starts using your thing. Uh, how does that like the scaling of of blockchain systems as they stand right now probably wouldn't be able to support that quite yet either you'd have to use things like infura or um set up something like uh plasma chain um what are your thoughts on the current state of blockchain scaling and uh how you guys plan on interfacing with these kind of alternative layer 2 solutions in the future um so Going back to, yeah, what, what I was saying earlier about how we've designed the concept of schema and permissions, we don't want to be constrained to placing bets on which blockchains and or layer two solutions will capture majority market share in the future. Um, we want to leave it abstract and we want to let users essentially decide what they want to sign with. Um, be that a Bitcoin transaction, a Lightning transaction, Plasma transaction, et cetera. Or a state channel. Or a state channel. Yeah. Um, so I guess if you're asking me personally, um, I'm pretty excited yeah. about Lightning. Um, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the growth of that network. 
Um, I think plasma, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff on Ethereum 2.0 or whatever it's called these days. Um, I think it's cool, but I think that plasma actually solves most of the problems related to scaling, um, frankly. So it's been interesting to see them iterate on those those models um, as, as sort of the last, I don't know, 18 months or so have gone on. Um, I remember when when they Vitalik and Joseph dropped that plasma paper. Um, I got really really excited um, because <laughs> me too. It was yeah, you know it was, it was sort of it was sort of an aha moment. So I think you know I've written a few articles on this in the past. I, I haven't really done any work on it in the last call it nine months. So I am a little bit out of the loop because I've been really really focusing hard on getting this lattice out, but. What I think makes the most sense from a design perspective um, in the plasma context is that you just have a sort of single operator who's who's you know running transactions probably through a database, honestly, and then just collapsing them down into Merkle trees and then committing that hash on the root chain. Um, and I think that that is sort of the, the underlying theme that has persisted across all the iterations of, of Plasma. Now you run into problems, um, especially in the earlier designs, you have the mass exit problem, where if you know the, the operator transfers all the money to himself and then tries to withdraw it, um, you know, someone would probably challenge that, but they, also everyone would be like, I don't want to be in this chain anymore, and they would, they would all leave. Um, and then you basically blow up Ethereum. So um, the way I think they've, they've figured ways to, to mitigate that, but then you also have this other problem of if you want, if you have like a non-fungible asset, um, and actually, I don't know how you would do plasma with fungible assets, uh, but non-fungible, no, with fungible assets. So, so the way that the original designs, and this is this, the constraint comes from the fraud proof, right? So the original designs were that you take ether and basically convert it into UTXOs, and then you track those UTXOs on the plasma chain across all the different Merkle branches. And then if you want to withdraw, you basically select a Merkle branch and make a proof uh, that you received that uh, that UTXO. Uh, the problem with that, of course, is that if you have to trace, or if you have like a, you know, a 10 cent UTXO that you have to trace origin on, and it's like passed through a thousand other people's wallets before it got to yours, it's not actually worth withdrawing, right? So um, I think that they talked about Plasma Prime as as sort of I think they're doing, uh, they're doing yeah like, that's like kind of the release that's basically going to handle the majority of the things that they're they're gathering consensus around all, all the all the naming schemes were kind of a joke that had different one offs and, and feature sets of of some type of, of plasma and they're kind of now coalescing around uh, Prime as the thing they're hopefully moving forward with and stopping with the shenanigans and naming at least that was the the rhetoric around DefCon. Yeah, and I think if I remember correctly, watching that talk, um, and I still haven't looked into this; it's on my to-do list. But the they mitigated that 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 problem that I was just talking about of of tracing the the like long mm -hmm. origin by using range proofs um, and by constraining uh, these these assets. I think they're still non fungible into um, like fixed Merkle branches, I believe. Um, anyway, I'm, hold I'm, on, quick question: How did they supposedly deal with the mass exodus problem? Um, I don't remember that one actually. Neither do I. Off the top of my head, we're having we're having Georgios on the show soon to 
ask these types of questions and see what the current state is uh, so people can kind of get together on it. That's, that's my yeah. big uh, to pick with Plasma is that, it, I mean, if they've solved the mass exit, that's great, but that's kind of like the, uh, I guess, my, my biggest catch point. I remember them talking about it, but I don't remember the conclusion around it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think I think plasma is really interesting from from like the perspective of, you know, you have this state that's somewhat complicated and you want to mutate it and you want to do it um, or you want to change it. How mutate it. you want to, you know, just you want to use this thing off chain and do lots and lots of state updates. I think that makes sense. Um, I think state channels are pretty interesting. So I think there are a few projects that are working on state channels and I'd like to see those with in the conjunction of uh, like stable coins like Dai. Um, another thing I'm I'm really excited about is actually the growth of uh, of Dai, and I think it started off when when they started when they kicked it off in like when was that 2016 when they when they first started it. I want to say that's right. Um, I you know I was like you know they're gonna launch this thing. I, I'm not confident it'll make it like through the weekend. We'll we'll just see if yeah. It, you know, <laughs> And it didn't. And, you know, every day that goes by, I think, is kind of a testament to, you know, its soundness. And as the as the liquidity pool grows, then the marginal cost of like doing that price oracle, I think, you know, drops um, relative to to the total supply. So I think it's a really cool. um, I'll still call it an experiment. I think it's a really cool experiment. Um, And, you know, I'm excited to see where that one goes. And then I think it's great that we have these backups like, you know, USDC and uh, whatever the other ones are. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of cool stuff happening. I do think we're still a ways away, um, but it's fun fun to track the metrics. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's kind of mirrors what I've been doing. I got really excited about all these layer two solutions and stuff, but their 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 timelines are a lot longer than I thought they would be. They seemed simple on the surface, but then things started popping up, like the mass exit problem. Oh, it turns and, out this is hard. We yeah, thought. right. So, <laughs> like, even though Vitalik and Poon put this paper out, doesn't mean it's solved. It just means that they've got a vision. But what I like about Plasmas is the architecture around it. Um, just the fact that you can build plasma chains under plasma chains, and and or just plasma mechanisms, which is something else I I. I I mentioned this to you before our interview started. I, I thought it was really interesting that you took the approach in a blog post a while ago about alternative ways of managing plasma staked um, value, um, such as in Kafka streams and in MySQL. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of interested in how once we solve the the general case of the chain problem, can that apply to other areas such as RDBMS? And like, um, yeah, I, I'm excited about those things personally, but. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. Like, I can't, I can't keep up to date with all that as I am not a researcher. I have to actually do stuff and, you know, I kind of apply these things in my real life. And so it's good to keep up with when I can, but you know, real life does take over. I definitely am excited for plasma personally. So actually one question I haven't asked in a while in the program, but I really want to ask you guys, are you philosophically a there will be many chains, a, a mesh net of, 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 of blockchains or, or consensus mechanisms out there uh, kind of person? Or are you, do you think evolution of just the markets and, and such will lead to just people selecting one and that'll be the main source of truth for the entire globe? 
So um, I'll jump on this first. Um, <laughs> you look pretty excited when you ask the question there for a moment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so I'll jump on this first. So, so one of the other things besides the mass exodus problem that I have with plasma is the tragedy of the commons problem, meaning that you don't have a mechanism by which the plasma operators have a requirement really to feed back uh, a lot of value in fees back to the chain. Um, and I think this ties into this concept of will we have many chains or will we have one chain? And I think that what you ultimately have to have is we will not have a sustainable chain until we increase layer one scaling, regardless of what we can come up in layer two. And that just has to do with uh, chain security. So um, I've come up with something that I kind of think of as like this um, uh, economic ratio of security. And what that is, is it's the market cap of a chain relative to the amount of money that's spent per day securing that chain. So, you know, I think a reasonable number for that ratio is somewhere between 10,000 and 50,000, let's say. Um, so, you know, if you have a um, hundred billion dollar market cap, you know, you have to spend at least 10 million per day, up to 50 million per day to like secure a hundred billion market cap. And where that comes from is that in, in a truly Byzantine environment, um, a nefarious actor, if they can execute an attack, so let's say it's $10 million a day in securing the network, if they can execute an attack for $100 million, which means they can roll back a chain um, you know, 24 hours later and they do a transaction with you for $101 million, um, they could essentially spend $100 million, uh, get you know what what they're receiving from you from for that $100 million run off and then roll back the chain and they'll have made an extra million dollars. So that's really kind of like the, the definition of what security is in a Byzantine environment. We can argue, okay, maybe there's like other mechanisms for enforcing that thing. There's, there's legal systems, there's nation states, there's militaries, but, but all of those things should be obviated if we do our job building a, a truly decentralized blockchains, right? So to, to truly have security in a Byzantine environment, you have to have money being generated in fees to secure the chain. And if you don't do that, you, you basically don't have a secure chain. You don't have a Byzantine fault tolerant system. So I would argue that the chains that are going to win are the ones that can actually generate more scaling on chain such that they can generate more revenue to secure the chain, which will support a higher market capitalization and will support a larger uh, value economic transactions to actually be secure. Um, I don't think that there'll be a single chain, but I do think that um, you'll, you'll probably have a period of distribution because it's sort of like a competitive evolutionary system. And that's how competitive evolutionary systems, you know, manifest. So you'll have, you know, four or five chains that make up 80 percent of the value, which is kind of what we already see with, um, you know, the marketplace as it exists. I think that will continue. Uh, but I think the ones that will win are the ones that... Um, will actually create mechanisms for doing uh, layer one scaling uh, in addition to layer two, so they can sort of achieve that economic security. And that, and that kind of framework you just gave, does there have to be an external source of uh, kind of value that's, that's securing the chain? Like for yeah, like so right now, it's, it's, the electric, it's the electric cost of running miners. That's basically the, the monetary uh, value, as well as the overhead of, of, of operating those, those, mine, those ASICs. And that's an external source being pumped into the securing of the chain. Yeah. So, so I think, I think you do need an external source of value. Um, 
there's right in and, and some some of this kind of gets into sort of like some ideological arguments between proof of stake and proof oh yeah of work. um you know one potentially I, I would say proof of stake you know if you sort of run down it there, there is value quote unquote being put up and that's the cost of money but the problem is because of two chains fork you have nothing at stake so really what proof of stake turns into is, is social consensus uh the difference being in proof of work that if it changed forks, I have to uniquely vote with my money on where I'm putting my hash power, which, which is not true with, with proof of stake. So, so that's which makes it not social consensus, but rather the, an economic consensus. Um, so, so I'm definitely kind of in the proof of work camp uh, in terms of the external value. It can be anything, right? It doesn't have to be electricity, right? Other people have come up with the concept of proof of storage, right? Yeah. But really what proof of storage is, is there's energy that goes into making a hard drive, which you then have to amortize over the life. It's of a scarce drive. physical resource. That's correct. You're going to have to do some use of a fit, scarce physical resource in some provable way on a blockchain to maintain economic security and not social consensus. If you think about the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve is social consensus, Right. It's it's all the big bankers with all the money got together and say, hey, we're going to dictate what the money supply is. You could you could absolutely see that devolving into the same thing under a proof of stake system on a blockchain. Well, let me turn that around. Like, I, I agree that you need to tie some sort of uh, scarce resource. But uh, I would make the argument that the scarce resource in a proof of stake environment is actually labor, meaning that the applications that are built on the chain itself give that chain value. Um, and if uh, and that social consensus is just another way of framing the uh, the scarce resource of labor and development and use of the chain. Um, so I, I would I would actually argue that both cases have some sort of scarce resource which is tied to it. But 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 it's not though, right? Because if I fork Ethereum, let's say, um, I can take all of that sort of work with me because you know these are these are open source distributed systems. And all those applications, uh, I just need to convince people to come with me. So that's that's a social process. That's a political process. And that's no different than convincing people to use the hash power on a different chain. No, no, it's completely different because they have to uniquely vote, right? In in a proof of stake system, I can hedge out, right? I I can I can keep staking on two different chains. The cost of the cost of switching is negligible in proof of stake. So you can, you know. Well, Possibly the thing both. is that the value itself doesn't I mean, vote is the point, right? I I can continue voting and staking with my with my monies from both chains. Yes, but if your user base is still stuck on this other chain, like you're going to have to make a decision. Like that's 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 what it will ultimately come to is where is the value of the users? If if the user base is is specifically looking in one particular direction, what truth? What truth are they referring to? Where basically? is the value of of your labor? Your labor's value is going to be in the social consensus side. I, I think what what Carl's saying is that as a block producer, which is the analog of a miner, right? If I'm running Ethereum software on my laptop, I can probably run two instances of it, right? And I can continue to produce blocks for both chains until such usership has basically chosen one. And I can continue to profit off of producing or potentially blocks. profit. There's no, there's no, there's no choice you have to make to, to point your validation software, whatever that'd be, whether that'd be an ASIC miner or a proof of stake uh, node. Uh, at one particular blockchain because it can only do one at a time. The overhead associated with doing multiple at a time is not big enough to have to choose. Yeah, correct. So so as a rational economic actor securing a chain, um, 
unless I have an ideology or a social tendency, I will keep uh, staking on both. Right. So like implicit in that idea, that, that's social consensus. It's, it's politics again. So we're reintroducing politics into what's supposed to be apolitical money. It's an argument. That's a strong point. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and, and anyway, I, have, I, I just have to mention something uh, because we're getting down this path. So um, I published a kind of a paper just outlining uh, a concept called block reduce, which is a way to scale uh, proof of work chains to basically meet, you know, humanity's transaction throughput. So, you know, 50,000 plus TPS. Um, I would love it if one of the core devs would, would take a thorough read of it and consider looking at that for a level one solution to Ethereum. Well, we will, uh, use whatever weight we have to try and get that happen. I don't know how much weight that is, but. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's available on archives. If you just, if you just, um, I'll put it in the show notes. How about that? Google it. Yeah. Uh, but, but anyway, I mean, that's, that's. Right. And this comes back to the idea of like what we're doing with the lattice one, too. Right. So, like, I would love it if we could stay on a proof of work system, because I think proof of work is not like a social consensus mechanism. And it will actually kind of realize like like free economic money. Right. Um, that's, you know, so, so proof of work and proof of stake in, in my mind is similar to like the lattice and Coinbase. Right. So. The lattice, if we decentralize things, we can disintermediate intermediaries, but people are actually in control of their money. So we're moving towards that like free, you know, system. Uh, and and I would think that the same thing is true if we can scale proof of work over proof of stake. I think that's more sort of free than if we go down the proof of stake path. So freedom on both sides is kind of what I'm shooting for. <laughs> I'm curious to see how all this develops uh, over over time. I mean, it's it's one of those things that I I don't I don't have strong ideological reasons either way. I want something that works that gives exactly what you're looking for. And I, I'm trying to find out what that's going to look like by talking to people like y'all. Um, yeah. Like anything else that we didn't get to ask you that you definitely wanted to talk about? Yeah, no, we, we appreciate it guys. I think that was a, a fun conversation. And uh, I do, I do really encourage people to think about like, as they're building systems, um, I think ideally in the world of blockchains, we, we have to think of ourselves as a little bit differently than traditionally in business. And that, you know, as the technologist, what we're really trying to do eventually is build a utility and a utility should be free and open to all rather than, um, you know, build this business that will perpetually take a fee. Um, so, you know, how, however we can effectuate that as technologists, I think one, it'll make you ultimately more successful, but two, I think it will realize the um, sort of vision of, of what we hope sort of, you know, free, fair economic digital money um, can be. So, Awesome. Thanks, guys. And uh, for the listeners, if you like this, hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you use. We should be on all of them. Uh, share it on Twitter. Share it on everything. Share it everywhere. Tell your friends. Tell everybody. You can find uh, us at hashingitout.stream. Yeah. Hashing or you can go to yeah. thebitcoinpodcast.com and click on 
um, like on podcasts or shows, and it'll be under there. Join the Slack on the BitcoinPodcast.com to talk with us, ask us questions, ask us about guests, so on and so forth. So thanks for coming on the show, guys. I greatly appreciate it and can't wait to see last ones and everybody's home. I'm going to have one. Yep. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks, guys.